trash panda, Corey, did you install the peephole yet in our apartment? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> you just won the prize. <laughs> See, if you had said yes, then I would have had to cut your head off. <laughs> With a knife. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to the Wages of Cinema. I am your one and only host, just Jack. No other name needed, just Jack. And I am Trash Panda Corey. Uh, the wifely duties is gone. Long live Trash Panda. Yes. Trash Panda for life. You know, you're modeled after the most wascally raccoon there is. I am a Trash Panda in all things. So. Yes, but this week, if that opening wasn't really clear enough as a reference, we're actually going to be talking about at least one legitimately classic masterpiece of cinema. And then the rest are varying degrees of trash. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, again, last time at the end of our last episode, we teased that maybe we'd have another batch of movies to talk about. And just in time for the end of this uh, Halloween season, we watched uh, just this time, just four movies. So it's not the, you know, the, the amount that we had last time in our Hulu uh, grab bag. Um but we taught, we watched all four Psycho movies. We did. So over the course of one week, we watched all four Psychos. Plus, I watched the first four episodes of the TV show Bates Motel. Okay. And I don't know if we can... Maybe we can work in the... We can bring up the talk about the, the show as we go along. Like, that might actually be good in conjunction with Psycho 4. Yes. Because, you know, the show itself, just like that movie, is a, for the most part, a prequel. So we'll get into talking about that soon enough. Um, I don't know if necessarily what spurred this on, except for, you know, a very boring reason, which was Amazon was having, like, an Amazon Prime Day, or, you know, like, kind of couple of days, and... I went on their website to check out some deals, and I came away with... A super inexpensive copy of The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, like the complete series. And they also had all four Psycho movies on Blu-ray for a very, very cheap amount. <laughs> and so I realized, hey, it's not it's it's been actually about maybe 10 years or so since I saw Psycho. It's been since, like, middle school since I watched the Psycho sequels. And you hadn't seen the Psycho sequels before. Correct. I had seen a little bit of Psycho 4 on television mm -hmm. as a small child. But beyond that, I had not seen any of the Psycho sequels. And I, while I... I'm wondering how you saw Psycho 4. They... I saw a little bit of it on TV once. Was it... But didn't they do... Where did they make that for Showtime? I didn't see it on maybe, TikTok. Maybe then, so you didn't get the full incest subplot. <laughs> well, I didn't even see very much of it. <laughs> okay, and obviously we'll get into that very, very soon. And um, I too, I had obviously seen Psycho before we watched it this past week. Yes. But I would say for me, it had been at, at least 15 years since I had seen it. Yeah. And, you know, Psycho is one of those movies that, frankly, I should be rewatching like every couple of years or so because you know god damn is this just a great great movie 
Yeah, I'm sorry we don't have any, we're not going to have any hot takes for you about, like, um, Psycho overrated. Well, We the, love Psycho. I, God, I'd hate to meet that person. You know, that's like, I mean, you know, you even if you tried to say something like the, the shower scene is overrated, I would just give you a look because, you know, that, we're, we'll, we can get into some specifics with that in a moment, but, you know, that shit holds up, man. I don't have anything that clever to say, except the way that that is shot, edited, performed, it it's not like anything else in film. No. And when I watched this movie, what I said to you is the entire movie is probably the best example I can think of off the top of my head of a masterful economical character development. What blows my mind about this movie is how quickly you fully understand these characters and even the bit players. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even if they're not on screen very long, like you quickly understand them in part, you know, it's an equal part of the writing Hitchcock directing and also who he casts. Like this movie has such great bit part in the cast and you know just even down to like um you know when uh, marion crane wakes up uh, you know just after she's been driving for a bit and she wakes up in the morning and the cops there that close-up of the cop yeah like i have to think that hitchcock must have been looking at god who knows how many uh faces justifying that one uh, officer oh. and and even down to like for example like the guy who plays the sheriff in uh Fairville, uh al chambers like he's uh, i think his name's john mcintyre he's 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 great but yeah keep going oh let me share my theory with the people about the cop in psycho and body double okay so <laughs> if, if, you, if anyone listening to this has not watched psycho in a while the cop in psycho has a very let's say distinctive looking face mm-hmm. it's a nice way to put it and i believe the face of the killer in body double mm. is modeled oh. after the face of the yeah. cop oh and by the way it's the actor's name mort mills i just like the, the highway patrol officer yeah i i don't know if i totally see that i mean i maybe a little bit i think that actor in body double is a little bit too like preppy looking well he's also wearing prosthetics well the prosthetics make him look like a fucking monster <laughs> uh, but oh by the way this guy mort mills i just looked him up he's he's one of those guys that's been in like all sorts of movies he apparently was in touch of evil the wild one uh torn curtain of course he popped up again in hitchcock um yeah just so many great faces here um and the thing I almost want to go back though for a second because um, I, unlike you, I, I read the book of Psycho years ago, and it might be worth mentioning about the book because you know that was what got you know Hitchcock interested in making it, and you know he a lot of his advisors at the time were like, why why do you want to make this? Like you just made Vertigo and North by Northwest, you've made these you know big colorful prestige movies, and he would just say over and over again, Psycho. No, 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 I have to do the voice. Excuse me. <clears throat> Psycho. <laughs> and he... <laughs> um, the thing is, it's 
it almost seems like a goof. Like Hitchcock wanted to just see what he could get away with because like the book is pretty trashy. Like the book is, is in some ways in terms of the structure, the same as the movie, but also like, I might've told you about this in the book. Norman Bates is, you know, he, he's almost like Newman. He's basically like a fat sweaty man who like, Actually, that's not even fair to Newman. Um, <laughs> he, he's almost more like, uh, I don't know, he just seems like a pathetic, like, schmuck who, like, uh, and then, like, it's also very graphic, too. Like, he, like, in the shower scene, like, the mother, like, cuts off practically marrying Crane's head. <laughs> and, uh, spoilers, uh, guys, I still remember years ago on the on on the podcast i think andrew <laughs> chastised me for spoiling yeah, psycho <laughs> which i mocked him for at the time and but, i'll mock him you again. know i let me tell you something like psycho is one of those movies that you know i saw high anxiety first i saw barry levinson stabbing mel brooks in the shower at the newspaper going here's your paper yeah. uh, and you know you you, you just know about that, like National Lampoon's Vacation Parody, all these things parody. My point is, though, it's like when you watch the movie again, again, as our resident trash panda, do you see, like, the trashy elements in the story, or do you think the filmmaking kind of covers all that up? I mean, I think... Norman Bates is kind of a lurid character, hmm. and I don't think his psychopathy is very subtle. Hmm. And I think the relationship between him and mother yeah. is pretty lurid. Yeah. But I don't think the movie's trashy in the sense of being yeah. poorly made. No, or... no, not at all, no. I think this movie is expertly crafted. Mm -hmm. I think I'm actually, just as I'm talking, I've thought of two things this kind of reminds me of, you know, kind of roundabout way. It's like the way that we look at Jaws, that movie, that really is a B movie type of story. You know, a lot, you know, people are getting attacked by a shark and people, you know, and they got to go and hunt down the shark. It's basically, you know, a monster story, but the filmmaking and the kind of approach to the material elevates it, that they take the character seriously that, you know, in a similar way that you talked about, you, know, you talk about the, the good, you know, strong economy of storytelling, you know, I don't know if I mispronounced that, but that's also there in Jaws. And I think that's the key is that they took the script seriously, that they actually treated these people more like, actual human beings where a lot of times when you watch like genre junk, it just kind of treats a lot of characters like, Hey, you're disposable. You're, you're going away. Like most other movies would have just started with, um, Marion Crane coming right to the motel. Well, the other thing is I would say mother is a very big, broad character but one of the strengths of psycho and one of the things the sequels build on and make really the centerpiece of you know psycho two three and four is that norman bates is a somewhat complicated character i mean he is the 
At least for the first two movies. The genesis of his psychosis might feel, again, a little lurid, a little like dime store Freudian nonsense. But Anthony Perkins actually gives the character a lot of shading and a lot of complexity. And actually, I think it benefits the story that, if I may speak for the ladies... Anthony Perkins is like a total dish. In oh yeah, Psycho. and it's kind of funny. Like after we wa- as we were watching the movies, you sent me this uh, People magazine uh, profile from like 1982 or 83 when Psycho Two came out, and it talked kind of in surprising depth about how you know when Anthony Perkins was hitting the scene and becoming you know kind of a known actor because he got an Oscar nomination for. This movie, I, I haven't seen. I think it's called, like, Pretty Persuasion, or mm-hmm. I might be mispronouncing that. I have my phone. I should be looking this up. <laughs> I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. Um, uh, what's, it, what's it called? Um, uh, no, no. Um, oh, 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 Friendly Persuasion. Like, he, you had actresses like Bridget Bardot and a young Jane Fonda and, like, even Ingrid Bergman, who were basically, like, you know, Come do me, Norman. Yeah. And Anthony Perkins was like, oh, gee, I, I don't know. Uh... Yeah, because he wasn't swinging that way in that time of his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did get married to a woman and had kids, but he was, I think, kind of gay. Uh, but again, that's not here or there. But you have so much empathy for or- yes. for Norman no matter what he does. It, he elevates the materials. Like, already he, there was a good character on the page. But another thing, I don't know if this was in the People article, or I watched a behind-the-scenes making of, and how, like, An- Anthony Perkins would talk with, like, the screenwriter of the movie and actually have serious conversations about, like, and this sounds esoteric, but he would ask, like, if, you know, Norman Bates was in a painting, what would it be? And, you know, they said, you know, the writer was like Edward Hopper and Norman Bates was like, I agree. (laughs) And so, like, they actually went into, like, deep thought about that. And again, that elevates it. Um, The other thing I was going to say is that in a way, like, the we he Hitchcock shot this movie with his regular TV crew. He shot it with the same crew they did the Alfred Hitchcock uh, show, the uh, Hitchcock Hour, whatever it was called. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Excuse me. And um, in a way, it's kind of like people talk about Planet of the Apes as like the ultimate Twilight Zone movie because it was written by Rod Serling. This feels like the ultimate Alfred Hitchcock Presents. (laughs) It's like a big deluxe R-rated package. (laughs) So, yeah, I would say... The bones of this story, like the architecture of the plot, you can see its genesis from a pulp novel. But Hitchcock gives the characters a lot more shading and a lot more complexity. Yeah, yeah. He he, he gives it complexity. You also, I also feel, you know, as kind of dumb as some of the moves she makes, I feel sympathy for Marion Crane. I feel a lot of sympathy for Marion. I I mean, I really love Marion, and I don't think the twist of her early death would pack the same punch if Marion Crane was a typical, like, slasher movie victim who you don't care about. I yeah. mean, you really love Marion yeah, by you, the time she meets her end. Yeah, and, like, even from that opening scene, like, you get the sense of, you know, she's really into 
you know, this, you know, would be Rock Hudson. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I might like, I kind of like John Gavin, even though he's based like a big hunk of meat in this movie. <laughs> um, you know, he's like the ultimate, like beefcake man. Um, it's kind of funny too. Like this is other than a side, but like, I think I showed you the poster for this movie and I just, I'm kind of fascinated by the poster of it because John Gavin is on the poster without his shirt on. And it's like, what is he doing on this poster? Like, is this from the opening of the movie? Is this from like a scene we didn't see? It's like Norman's on the poster, Marion Crane in her bra is on the poster, and that tiny little John Gavin. I literally never noticed that he was on the poster before. Yeah. I just go It's to just Mary. so weird. He's hanging in there like an orangutan. Like, look at his arms. Yeah, it looks <laughs> like he's going to be in a wrestling movie or something. Yeah. But it's also, I think the other thing that's really impressive, and what's surprising, again, 60 years later, but, like, movie's kind of sexy. It's yeah. like that opening scene between Marion and uh, Sam Loomis. You know, you can kind of feel the heat of their relationship. And and then, like, just her in that bra is, is still kind of like, ooh, she's in a bra. And obviously that's not quite the same now 60 years later, but it's still, like we're seeing it through, like, Hitchcock's point of view. You can also feel Norman's attraction to her. Yes, absolutely. And that's an interesting point that, like, you're following Marion, you know, for, like, 35, 40 minutes of this movie, and then very seamlessly, like, they have that conversation in Norman's parlor, which, you know, is, like, the best scene of the movie, Mm -hmm. I think. Actually, that, to me, is my favorite scene, like, because that's, like where their characters really crystallize and they get to like, yeah. you know, very quickly know each other and how quickly Norman opens up to this person he met five minutes ago. And that says a lot about him. If anyone ever talked to me the way I heard, the way she spoke to you. Sometimes when she talks to me like that, I feel I'd like to go up there and curse her and, and, and leave her forever or at least to fire. But I know I can't. She's ill. She sounded strong. No, I mean ill. She had to raise me all by herself after my father died. I was only five, and it must have been quite a strain for her. She didn't have to go to work or anything like that. He left her a little money. Anyway, a few years ago, Mother met this man, and he he talked her into building this motel and when he died too it was just too great a shock for her and, and the way he died <laughs> i guess there's nothing to talk about while you're eating anyway it was just too great a loss for her she had nothing left except you well, a son is a poor substitute for a lover why don't you go away? To a private island like you? No. Not like me. I couldn't do that. Who'd look after her? She'd be alone up there. The fire would go out. It'd be cold and damp like a grave. 
If you love someone, you don't do that to them even if you hate them. You understand? I don't hate her. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace? You mean an institution? A madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears. And the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. I am sorry. I, I only felt... It seems she's hurting you. I meant well. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Um, and, you know, there's just so much about that scene we could get into, but then she leaves the room and we stay on Norman. And it's very seamless. It's like suddenly now, oh, now it's his story. And we're seeing him take down the painting and look through his people. And that's all we need. <coughs> we just need that one scene with them. And that one scene is enough for us to follow Norman through the rest of the film. Yeah. God, that, and I, what I love about that scene, too, is just how um, very subtly Hitchcock communicates certain things that you don't pick up on the first time or even the second mm -hmm. time. But, like, the way he's surrounded by all those birds, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the, the prequel to the birds. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they, the birds in this movie are really just pissed off at Norman Bates. I mean, in, in, in the birds. Movie. Anthony Perkins is so good in this movie. It's the type of performance that as I'm watching it, I, like, can't even believe what and, I'm watching. And very surprisingly, he Janet Lee was nominated for an Oscar, which, you know, frankly so, Anthony Perkins snubbed. Ridiculous. Like, oh, I, here's a good question for you. Worst snub, Anthony Perkins in Psycho or Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler? Oh, that's tough. <laughs> I, you Come know... on, Corey, you need to have the money to buy a ticket. <laughs> I when we were watching Seiko again, I made a really weird comparison in my mind when we were watching this. Yeah. And I think, I really think a lot of what makes Norman Bates work is in Perkins' performance, even more than the script. Yeah. Not that the script is bad. The script is obviously fantastic. But I think the movie relies very heavily on his charisma. Well, his charisma and just how lived in his behavior is and just the little just the way that the ticks kind of you know they aren't so uh because sometimes you might watch a performance by someone who's quote-unquote you know crazy mm -hmm. so to speak and you can kind of tell like sometimes in certain movies i'm not going to mention any names but sometimes they're you know set in a mental hospital with all <laughs> sorts of kooky characters <laughs> but in this movie it's like you take that scene where um 
Arbogast comes to uh, to interrogate him, you know, and look through his like book. Like Norman at one point is kind of stuttering. Yeah, but it's not like this. Like it, it's not overblown. It's just the reaction of someone who's clearly trying to hide something and isn't doing a good job. His performance becomes a little tickier, let's say, in later films. Oh my god! Well, <laughs> well, and we'll get to those. Believe me, and but, by, especially by the time you know Perkins is not taking direction from anybody. But do you know the weird-ass comparison I made when I was thinking about this? I was comparing it to Tim Curry in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I was saying that, like, I think Dr. Frankenfutter is a very good character on the page, but Tim Curry makes that movie. If it's anyone else... Yeah. It's it's that Tim Tim Curry is just literally, like, burning holes on the screen. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he, he has, in a strange way, yeah, and also Perkins has a kind of slight charisma to him, too. As you said, he's also attracted to the ladies, um, so that helps. So it's not like, you know, he's this unattractive guy. He has, like, just like all the other characters in the movie, he has, you know, he's very distinctive, and... I think the type of charisma that he generates is... In me, he created an intense desire for me to nurture him, even yeah. though he is a murderer, well, it, a mass murderer. Well, going back to that parlor room conversation, again, he's – what we often – so often don't see in movies with, you know, killers is real, like, vulnerability. Yeah. And that's what he expresses with, you know, this – bond with his mother where on the one hand he's like well the boy's best friend is his mother and then he has that whole i would just i want to curse her and just leave and do all and all that stuff and and you feel like his torment and that also you know when she asks about taking to you know putting her in another place yeah <laughs> see she, she you see where she fucked up there she should have just clarified i'm in an old age home <laughs> And we see how he turns on a dime, but... It's very subtle, too. I love... It's like, again, how Hitchcock shoots it. It's like Perkins is kind of sitting back, and then he just leans forward. Like, he kind of fills the frame, then does the... You mean a mental institution? A madhouse? (laughs) My mother there? (laughs) So... (laughs) And so, again, it's like... A lot of these great movies, it's so hard to have that kind of twist that we know that at the end and then go back and watch it anew. But that's what this movie does. It's like, you know, you know, Fight Club is also in that tradition where you can go back and see a scene and find new things to pick apart in it. Yeah, but the way the movie makes Norman so legitimately creepy. That too. But also um, someone that stirred my sense of empathy through the entire film. I mean, yeah, he stirs your empathy, and even down to, like, the other great scene, which is after the shower scene. Yeah. You know, it's like, again, the shower scene is, like, you know, that's the boy getting killed in the water by the shark and jaws. It's, of course, it's it's great. It's It's, you know... It's meant to be like a showcase. It's meant to be a giant set piece. But it's the scene after that really is what makes it because he we just follow him for like 10 real-time minutes cleaning up that uh, motel room. Yeah. And so you get the sense he just 
he's done this before. Like in a story sense, you talk about economy of storytelling, you can read into it like, well, he knows what he's doing here. And that's what makes it extra terrifying. He's taken on this other dimension, you know, and, and that also is too that highlights the whole idea of, well, he's not really, you know, he's not mother in that moment. He's just cleaning up his quote mother's crime. Yeah, and the and the movie also it does a great job of on the one hand kind of seamlessly moving us from one protagonist to another. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, but on the other hand, you do feel the ache of the actions of Marion for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's funny too because the way Hitchcock casts it, I feel like Vera Miles looks a little bit like like uh, Marion. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a which is ironic considering Vera Miles was supposed to be the lead in Vertigo. Um, she got like pregnant or something, so she couldn't do it. Um, but it's like once again, you're playing a character who looks like another character. So her presence, I feel like, kind of reminds you of Marion too, because she as she's trying to find uh, her sister. Um, I want to talk about uh, my favorite, like. Not my favorite shot in the movie, or maybe I'll ask what maybe if you have a favorite shot or moment, but the one that fascinates me so much, and I brought it up to you when we were watching it, it's this one moment that I keep thinking about when, again, Arbogad uh, is is there checking out the the book to mm-hmm. see the the name, the signature, and you know Norman's there and he's kind of staring a little bit, and then there's this shot where, you know, Arbogast asks him, "Hey, what's this name right here?" And Hitchcock has this shot where he's kind of looking up at Norman and Anthony Perkins moves his head to look at the book. And he's like looking up at Norman's like the underside of his neck. (laughs) And he's like also chewing his candy corn. So his like mouth is kind of like moving as he's looking and trying to say, hmm, yeah, that's that's what Samuels. I did not get this at all until you met. It's so weird. It's so (laughs) weird. And what's weird to me about it is the idea that, you know, we know Hitchcock storyboarded the hell out of his movie. He storyboarded every shot. He would talk over and over in interviews about how he found filmmaking, the directing on set, so boring because he had made the movie already in pre-production. Like, he shot it, so to speak, in his storyboards. And so I'm picturing, how did he storyboard that shot? (laughs) Did he have, like, a shot of, like, a little face and, like, (laughs) the underflesh of a neck looking up? Well, I love when we were watching the movie and you mentioned to me how, like, Norman's really craning his neck. And I, I had to give you a pun. I had to do it. Yeah, he's crazy. Yeah, and I don't have a. Well, it almost looks like he's like one of his birds. That's the other thing. Like you know, one of his like a bird would do that kind of motion. I don't have a favorite mm-hmm. shot, but I would say my favorite scenes in the movie are the scene with Marion negotiating to replace the car when she's looking at the cop across the street. That that is a good scene. That's like a. That's almost like a scene out of the office. I uh, <laughs> like she's a, she's kind of like Michael Scott in that scene. So I love that scene. Of course, I love the scene Norman and Marion's conversation. I love the Norman and Marion cleanup. But mm-hmm. like uh, Norman cleaning up, and also I love the way 
Norman, when we finally find out that, you know, Norman is mother, I love the way that Norman Bates actually looks both scary, but also like a 12-year-old kid <laughs> in mother's yeah. clothing. Yeah, he kind of pops in and he's like, hey, hey, hi, hi. Like, he, yeah. I actually like how it's, it's physically a- not intimidating he looks his mother, because that almost makes it look creepier, that it doesn't look like he has the, like, the sheer strength and power to overwhelm you, and he looks so deranged, but he also looks really youthful, so I love the, like, the actual reveal of yeah. Norman, his mother. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah, I love that reveal too, and I love the whole like way he's contorting and as John Gavin's pulling apart like her dress, it it feels like it should be on stage. Yeah. Oh, I'm also um I'm oh my well, I was about to say my favorite shot is the shot of Arbogast falling down the stairs. <laughs> I know it's like you can tell it's such a process shot uh-huh. where it's like the actor was clearly like falling in one space and the stairs were somewhere else. But it's just so, like, I found it kind of scary. I find that kind of creepy, the way he's, like, falling and he looks like he'll never fall down and all that. Um, Oh, also the fact that the score is just, like, you know, it sounds like a knife is cutting at you at times. Yeah. Also, I know... We would be remiss if we did not mention... The, 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 the psychiatrist monologue at the end. I know you want to defend the psychiatrist monologue, I, and I defend it too. I Again, nobody likes it. That's why I like it. I kind of find it so hokey, but it, like, you almost kind of need that. I guess, you know, maybe that was more for people in 1960 who... Or like, what the fuck? Well, He's in a dress? That's what I always say. That you have to keep in mind, people seeing this movie for the first time <clears throat> 60 years ago, existing in, yeah, I'm going to say it, a much less sophisticated pop culture environment, who are much less savvy about these kind of things, they probably needed a little exposition because they did not grow up with this movie as an omnipresent part of their culture, constantly referenced, constantly. So I think if I had seen the movie and it did not have the monologue, I'd be fine. But I find the monologue entertaining because the psychiatrist is such a ham bone. He's, well, he sounds like he's auditioning for Perry Mason and <laughs> not, getting, not getting the gig. Um, but no, you know what's interesting, though? I don't know if I told you this before, but I was I watched the making of on the on the Blu-ray, and apparently, you know, Hitchcock he obviously had to so he had to try to work his way with the censors, and you know, because obviously that shower scene it's like it's cut in such a way where you're not totally sure like is the knife going in? What are uh-huh. we seeing? It's intentionally done that way. He and Saul Bass storyboarded it to be like uh-huh. that, but. What's funny is the censors, it seemed like the the problem they had the most was with the word transvestite. Like, you couldn't, like, they had a problem with that being in the script. Like, you couldn't use that word in 1960. Well, I mean, we're very uptight about these things. Yeah, but the fact that you couldn't just say the word, like, they had more of a problem with transvestite 
than there being a toilet in the movie. (laughs) I actually didn't know that. I had heard, of course, about the thing with the toilet, and I had heard about Hitchcock's incredible, like, battle with the ratings board over the shower scene. Yeah. I did not, I had actually never heard about the freak out about the word transvestite. Yeah. Yeah, so that, oh, and oh, we should also, we'd be worse about talking about the very end of the movie. Oh, I love it. I love the very last shot of Norman. And well, what's great about that, too, is that it echoes, you could say, what happens with Marion early in the movie, where she's driving her car and has these, you know, thoughts out loud that are going through her head, which, mm. like, I think that's what kind of endears us to her, too, is because... We've all had those kind of conversations in our heads, or I've had that, where I kind of, I've jumped to, to conclusions thinking about if I've maybe done something wrong, what the pe- like people maybe I did wrong with are going to say. I don't know if you've ever had that. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that's with that. And now, but with Norman, it's there's like no Norman there. It's just mother. Yeah, Norman is gone. And again... Like everything with Norman, it's really creepy, but it's also really tragic because at the time, I'm sure they weren't planning for three additional sequels. So we were thinking this is the last we're going to see of Norman and any anything good that was left in Norman is gone. And you're right. It's just mother. Yeah. And oh, one thing I have to mention before we move on to Psycho 2 is I did mention in the movie that it's so hilarious that she's writing that thing where she has to write down on paper 40,000 minus 700. Well, but again, you know why they did that? Yeah. Because Joseph Stefano wanted to see a toilet flush in a movie. Yeah. (laughs) I know plot-wise, too. Yeah. Like, he seriously asked Hitchcock, like, he told him, I want to have a toilet flush in the movie, and Hitchcock told him, make it so. <laughs> like, he was like a fucking Patrick Stewart. You have to make it so in the <laughs> plot. But yeah, you know, Mary's been working in the bank for 10 years, and she needs to, like, write out by hand 40,000 minus 700. Well, you know, you have to keep the books sometimes. I mean... <laughs> Have you ever tried to do that kind of math in your head? Yes, and I have probably <laughs> fell. But... Yeah, don't, don't, don't like, do don't look down on those who can't do math. <laughs> well, I can't do math. That's horrible at math. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock Psycho, pretty good movie. Pretty good movie. Yeah, pretty good movie. <laughs> oh, one last thing that's interesting to note was, um, I don't know if you've ever heard Ingmar Bergman's quote about Psycho. I don't think so. Yeah, like he, I remember seeing this years ago because I would see, like, I would go on IMDb and, like, Ingmar Bergman could be like a salty dog in interviews. Like, he talked trash. Did he not like it? No, not exactly that. It's like, it's, he, I'll try to look up the quote right now because he said something that was just, I'm not totally sure if I completely agree with him. Look at, like I said, he would trash talk. He talk. He trash talked Godard. He nothing actually, wrong with that. Actually, he trash talked. Um, like, sadly, he kind of trash talked. Um, what you might call it. Uh, um, Citizen Kane of all things. Like he thought like uh, Orson Welles wasn't a good actor. Oh. So that was kind of sad. Um, Dude oh, got swagger and liked being a troll. Okay, well, here's what he said. This I don't know if this is the full quote, but he said. Hitchcock was a very good technician. 
Gee, that's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> he said, and he has something in Psycho. He had some moments. Psycho is one of his most interesting pictures because he had to make the picture very fast with very primitive means. He had little money, and this picture tells very much about him. Not very good things. He's completely infantile, and I would like to know more. No, I don't want to know about his behavior with, or rather, against women. But this picture is very interesting. Well, I mean, we do. <laughs> what's funny about that quote is we do know how Alfred Hitchcock tortured the hell out of Timmy oh, yeah. Hedron. Oh, the yeah. Birds, no, no. But... Well, not even that. Like, you know, we always talk about, like, you know, with people like, uh, like Woody Allen, or even not even going there. Like, let's actually talk about like a smaller potato, like that nobody gives a shit about, like Brett Ratner. You know, we always say like, you know, we we talk about how he harassed people on set. Hitchcock not only he harassed Tippi Hedren, he allegedly, well, according to Tippi Hedren, actually like like kind of sexually harassed her. <laughs> like, but we aren't really saying you know cancel Hitchcock. I mean, that's kind of like. Do you cancel God? <laughs> well, what I would say about Bergman, what I would say about Bergman's quote is, actually, watching a director's movie tells you nothing about how they treat people on set. So it's a ridiculous thing to say. Um, he might have inadvertently blundered into some kind of truth, but not because... Yeah, I don't, again, I don't, I'm not saying I agree with him. It was just, he... You know, it did make me think sometimes about other, like, other directors sometimes with certain Do you movies. think Hitchcock had a touch of Norman in him? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think maybe he was just fascinated by that. Again, we actually talked off mic about this, how much more Hitchcock you need to watch and, like, movies of his that you haven't seen. Yeah. And... The thing with a lot of his movies, he got a lot of stuff into his movies that, like, kind of went by the censors, I think. Like, you know, in Rope and Strangers on a Train, like, he has basically, like, gay characters in those movies. They're just not, like, saying, like, fabulous or some, you know, stereotypical shit like that. But they're, but it's pretty clear if you just read into Between the Lines. You know, he's had, like, sexually frank stuff in a lot of his movies. I don't know. I think maybe he just gets a kick out of it. Well, I am certainly not going to advance any kind of argument that said if you like sleazy movies, you're a sleazy person. Yeah. Sometimes um, an individual, I'm speaking purely hypothetical, hypothetically, of course, can be strongly attracted to exploitation movies, movies that are very gory and violent or sleazy, and they're totally boring in their actual day-to-day -day life. Gee, I can't think of anybody like that. Maybe people chase thrills vicariously I, through cinema. Yeah, well, I mean, look, Roger Corman you know, made the sleaziest, trashiest movies on, or, you know, he's the king of the B-movies, and you know, he would rather just sit at home and watch an Ingmar Bergman movie. So I actually, <laughs> I very much am opposed to okay. Bergman's um, hypothesis. No, yeah, I know. I'm not saying I agree with it exactly. It's just, but it's kind of a strange thing that he says. It's very interesting. And he also maybe hates women. I don't read that into it at all. Like I said, like, I feel like the movie's very empathetic to women. Well, 
here's maybe here's what Bergman was thinking of. I think the movie is very empathetic towards Marion. I think the movie is very empathetic towards um, well, it has Delilah. Maybe Bergman was saying that because he thinks the movie also posits that Norman's problems really come from mother. So maybe Bergman was saying it's a misogynistic movie because mm. um, Norman was driven to be the man he was because of how he was abused and mistreated by mother. Mm. And that mo- and this is something that other movies explore as well, that... The stereotype of, like, a domineering mother. So maybe that's what Bergman was going for, mm. the idea oh. that Norman was who he was in large well, part because of how he was abused by mother. Or to make, or to boil it down to an even more, like, one of those psychological catch-alls, the Madonna horror complex. Yeah. Maybe yes, that. definitely. Okay. But, I mean, there are other women in the Psycho universe besides Mother. Yeah, which is a good segue into Psycho 2. Yes, Psycho 2. Because <laughs> we've been talking about this a lot. Okay, so for those of you, hopefully if you have, maybe you haven't seen Psycho 2, if not, again, we are going to spoil these movies, so I'm sorry, but we're just going full steam ahead. Um you know, as you, as the Simpsons might say, these are steamed hams. Uh, you don't get that reference. Wasn't that, don't you remember that <laughs> thing with like uh, the principal at Skinner and Chalmers and like this joke involving steamed hams? <laughs> All right, never mind. No, I'm sorry. This is like not podcast relevant, but I got like some emails from two students. So I was looking at them really fast. I'm sorry. That's okay. All On right. the Psycho 2. On the Psycho 2. And. Um, what's fascinating about Psycho 2 is, first of all, it's pretty good. The staff report, Norman Bates is judged, restored to sanity, and is ordered released forthwith. What about his victims? Don't they have any say? Can you restore them? Madam, please sit down. This matter is being represented by the district attorney. Your Honor, my name is Mrs. Lila Loomis. I have a petition here signed by 743 people against Norman Bates' release, including the relatives of the seven people he murdered. Doesn't that give me the right to speak out? Has the district attorney advised Mrs. Loomis about her rights in this matter? Yes, Your Honor. I explained that her petition had no effect on these proceedings. Have you explained to her that this hearing is Why a matter of law, and not a motion? Don't you realize yes, they're going to release a homicide Mrs. Loomis, I'm going to ask you to sit down, or I'll have the bailiff remove you from this courtroom. If you have any further questions, please discuss them with the district attorney after this hearing. Why bother? It's all too obvious. Our courts protect the criminals, not their victims. Yeah, this is definitely a good movie. And most impressively, I actually think the movie had something new to contribute. Yeah, it, it was about, and more than that, it was about something different than the yeah. first Psycho. It, it actually took the character Norman in a different direction, and it, it plays into the whole, well, what if he's, it doesn't play the, well, actually, I should, let me put it this way. It doesn't play the easy thing of, well, he's crazy again. It, actually tries to make him a redemptive character. Yeah, so at the start of the movie, Norman is being let out of the institution after being imprisoned 
for in a mental institution for 22 or 23 years. Yeah. And actually the long break between Psycho 1 and Psycho 2, I think really benefits Psycho 2. It does. And like we sometimes still see this happen today, you know, and sometimes it works and sometimes it, you know, really doesn't. I mean, this could have gone the way of like Dumb and Dumber 2. <laughs> Which I know, again, you didn't see, but, you know, again, thankfully, this is more in line with something like, um, I know it's not exactly the same kind of comparison, but like Blade Runner 2049, you know, the way that that movie takes the, you know, the Deckard character in like a whole other rare area we weren't expecting. Um, And it wasn't necessarily a story, but you get what I mean. It's like, we're now leaping ahead a generation and... It's like some things have changed and some things just stay exactly the same. Yeah, so we're watching Norman and his struggles to reintegrate. Yeah, struggles to reintegrate and how now and then like what happens if now suddenly murders are kind of happening again and you know, is it Norman? Is it like someone else? Is it the person who keeps on calling Norman and Norman's responding with mother? And what's happening with him there? Is he just getting crank calls or is he starting to lapse into being crazy again? I think another thing this movie does well <clears throat> is in keeping with the first movie, it shows us the lasting trauma of losing Marion to Lila. Yes. And it shows how the loss of her sister wrecked the rest of her life, basically. Well, not just that, also the way that it happened, that it was this, like, such a random freak thing of, like, her going to this motel and this, you know, guy in this persona um, doing this to, to her and now all of a sudden he's being let out. I mean, that's something that also, um, I'm not, again, the way that Vera, Vera Miles returns is Lila, now called Lila Loomis, because, you know. <laughs> she married <laughs> Sam Loomis. She, she went for the beefcake. Um, <laughs> you know, that happens in everyday life. You know, it, to quote, to paraphrase uh, Ed Wood, you know, in real life, Lila <laughs> would have to go through that door every day. But no, it's like, that happens, though, where sometimes in, like, cases involving criminals who are let off, you have the the victim survi- the, the survivors of the of the victims, the family members, being like, how, how dare this happen? You know, it's like, you know, when um, if one of the Manson family got out, you know, what would the family of the victims say about that? And spoiler warning, I guess, for Psycho 2... Uh, that's almost now. It's almost a 40-year-old movie. Yeah. We're just going to spoil all these movies. Like it or lump it. We find out that Lila and her daughter are embroiled in a gaslighting campaign against Norman. Yeah. That they are trying to drive him crazy again yeah. so he can go back into the institution. Yeah. And and the um, Meg Tilly plays... Uh, uh, the character of Mary, Mary Loomis, um, initially Mary Samuels, which of course is a strange in joke to the first movie where that's the name that, uh, or Marie Samuels is the name that Marion Crane writes down in the book. 
I don't know. Maybe they're maybe they had a Maurice Samuels that they teased in school back then. I don't know uh, that the, the the Crane girls had. Um, but yeah, so so Meg Tilly enters the picture. She's like this. She she acts like she's just this girl in town that has doesn't have a place to stay. She's working at the diner, and so Norman shows some sympathy and lets her stay at his place, and. And, you know, and they start to get close to each other, and yeah. but then this causes some problems when it's revealed. Yep, she's marrying Crane's niece, and you know, yeah. There, but now that, but also, what happens now when Mary is having problems with what her mother's doing? Yeah, because Mary comes <clears throat> to actually care for Norman and actually believe in the sincerity of his rehabilitation, and. Yeah. I'm really glad that that was kind of a twist in the movie because in the beginning of the movie, before you know that she's marrying Crane's niece on a mission to try to, you know, mind fuck Norman, I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, why would this idiot girl agree to move in with Norman Bates. Yeah. However, once you know that she's not a random down-on-her-luck girl, that makes sense. Did you ever think, at some point, by the way, did you ever think that she could have been doing the killings? Yes. And I was hoping it wouldn't go that way. So... Because, you know, I figured that would be just a little too easy. Yes, I did think there was a possibility she was doing the killings. Yeah. There are there are a few good kills in the Yeah, yeah, there are a few good kills. We should mention that again, this is now in nineteen eighty three, so you know, this is now the studio saying, Well, we're now in the eighties, we're in the slasher boom, let's actually make this kind of a slasher movie. And um and the director that they got for the movie, he was this guy named Richard Franklin who was actually kind of close to Hitchcock in the, like the end, last years of his life. Like Richard Franklin was like a student at the UCLA Film School and helped to actually revive certain Hitchcock movies. And he kind of got in touch with Hitchcock and was almost like a protege. So it's kind of fascinating that he was tapped to make this movie because I think he kind of understands some of that Hitchcockian psycho psychology to the lack of a better word. So yeah, I think the best thing I can say about this movie is that this movie actually has something to say and it actually has a legitimate new take on Norman and it has, it's a new, it's a legitimate new chapter. it, It takes Norman seriously. Perkins is, is there for giving it his all, but it's also now an older Norman. He's, you know, he's not the same Norman as he was before, even though it does come out and he does still have some of those like ticks and you have that kind of look in his eye when he is listening to mother on the phone. I do have one criticism of this movie though. I, I know what it is, but Yeah, because I told you this when we're watching the movie. I don't think Megan Telly gives a good performance in this film, and since her character is pretty much the second most inca- second most important uh, character in the film, that's a problem. Well, what I'll say is, I didn't really buy her in the early part of the movie where she was trying to play Norman. Like, but I think that once it's revealed about who she really is, 
I liked her performance a little more, and I thought she got a little better as the movie went on. I'm not saying that her performance is, you know, on the level of Perkins, but overall, I'd say she's fine. Like, she's not terrible, but she's not, like, great. She she kind of grows into the role a little bit. I would agree with you the performance <clears throat> gets better over the course of the film, but for me, the big issue is... I just don't think she demonstrates much range mm-hmm. as an actress in this film. Yeah. Mary has to play a lot of different notes over the course of the film. For Mary to really work as a character, she has to convincingly play, you know, a downtrodden, plucky youth. She has to play being internally conflicted over how she and Lila are trying to kind of drive Norman back into insanity. Mm-hmm. And she has to play having legitimate affection for Norman. So there are a lot of different notes that she has to be able to strike to make the character really work. And I just don't think she does. I think her line deliveries are very kind of samey. I don't think there's a mm-hmm. lot of range. I think her character is the opposite of Norman Bates in the sense that I think her character is very rich on the page, but she doesn't do much yeah, with it. I guess that's that's fair. We should mention, too, though, there are, you know, talking about in the first movie, you know, in that first movie, you had Martin Balsam, you had, uh, you know, a number of, you know, really, you know, Vera Miles, you had a number of really cool character actors. In this, you get Dennis Franz. He was awesome. Who plays, you know, he comes on as just the sleaziest bastard. And, you know, he's one of those guys in town that's just trying to get Norman riled up. Um, You have him. Robert Loggia, who's playing a normal guy. (laughs) That's kind of fascinating. He's not playing, like, one of his, like... You know, he's not like his character on The Sopranos, for example. He's the doctor, right? Yeah, he's the doctor. Um... Oh, his death scene is hilarious. When <laughs> they accidentally kills him while dressed in mother's clothing, and then he falls down. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. I would also, uh, and also, um, Claudia Breyer, who plays, spoiler, the real mother of Norman Bates who pops up at the end of the movie. Oh, I remember Matt Lynch on Letterboxd said, like, greatest shoveling in cinema. (laughs) Yeah, the one unambiguous murder that comes at the end of the movie involves Norman Bates with a shovel to this old woman. And the other thing, you haven't really touched on this, I think this movie's actually pretty funny. Yes. Like, legitimately. And intentionally so at times. Yeah, it's really playing up, like some of the stuff with Norman and yet it's, it could, it's very tricky because it could fall into us laughing at the movie, but I think the movie knows what it's doing and we can laugh with it. And I think that's very tough to do, but it's, and I agree. It's a very like absorbing story because of what Norman's going through. But there are times where it's kind of funny to see how he's, like, almost breaking down. And, like, he can't even slice a sandwich without (laughs) becoming an ordeal. (laughs) You remember that scene? It's like he has the knife. And it's like he's being... I hate this term now because it's... I hate it so much. But 
He's basically triggered in that scene. Well, I love to. Apparently, every <laughs> single kitchen task Norman does <laughs> has to be done with a giant ass butcher knife. Yeah. No butter knives in the bakehouse. <laughs> yeah, like you, you couldn't get like some. I don't know if they had. Uh, you know, fake utensils by that point. Or even just a normal-sized, like, thin steak knife. So, uh, I love that just cutting a soft (laughs) sandwich requires this knife that you could gut a deer with. And the thing is, if you took that scene out of context of the movie, you would think, like, oh, what the fuck is this? What'd they they do? Like, this is what I would, why I feared this would be. But the rest of the movie isn't that. It actually is, like, a good character study. And, you know, a good, and also just a good suspense movie. Also, pour one out for poor Lila, who meets a very messy end in this movie. All right, here's my one, here's a criticism I have of the movie. Like, I do enjoy some of the kills, some of the makeup is a little bit sketchy. Oh, yeah. Like, there's... Dennis Franz has a death scene, and, like, the film... They show his face right before he gets, like, sliced. Oh, yeah. And he clearly has makeup on. And then, yeah, Vera Miles gets a knife through, like, the back of her head. But you see it, like, through her mouth going through her head. And the front head. It looks like they made her head out of a cantaloupe. <laughs> Oh, Ingmar Bergman says that, you know, the original Psycho hates women. I think Psycho 2 is a triumph of feminism because it shows us that little old ladies can be efficient mass murderers. Because what we learn at the end of the movie is that all the kills have not been committed by Norman. They've been committed by Emma, um, Norman's quote-unquote real mother. Now, were they... Lila didn't commit any of the murders. I, I don't maybe think she so. committed like one of them. Maybe I think Emma committed uh, them all, in, inclu- including at one point, kind of hilariously, two like teenagers who go into who who sneak <laughs> into the basement. <laughs> which, you know what? Actually, I kind of buy that. That's not bad. Like <laughs> you know, you would think like the Bates Motel. If you were living around that town. The Bates Motel, the Bates House would kind of take on that, you know, cultish, weird New Jersey type of vibe, you know? It's like almost a dare. Are you going to go into the Bates House? No way. You went to the Bates House? No way, bro. <laughs> so. But yeah, I. Yeah, it's women very. Women can very, kill people too. Women can kill. Little old ladies can be axe murderers too. Yeah, it's, it's inspirational. Like, I know. It's like, <laughs> thank you for being a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's does it live up to the first movie? No. What? Nothing. I and like. Unless if you made The Godfather 2 of Psycho movies, it would not live up to Psycho 1. But again, it's a good sequel. Now, that leads us into Psycho 3. The guy just wants to be left alone in peace. Aren't you going to take him in for questioning or anything? Just leave him alone. Norman Bates is back to normal. But Mother's off her rocker. Again. Norman, is that you? Yes, Mother. It's me. 
<laughs> which we're going to maybe disagree about. We disagree a bit on Psycho 3. Um, I'll start by saying the things I like about Psycho 3. Yeah, and we, <laughs> and we should mention, too, Psycho 3 picks up just like a month or two after, the, after Psycho 2. So almost Psycho 2 and 3, even though obviously they both can't help but reference the first movie sometimes to its detriment um they are almost like one unit yeah now i should mention of the four psycho three is actually my least favorite even though psycho four is objectively a worse film psycho three is my least favorite but i'll say the things i like about psycho three i actually i really like how the movie looks i like how Anthony Perkins, as a director, has fully embraced what I called neon sleaze as we were watching it. So... Yeah, it's a very colorful movie. It's it's as colorful as Psycho's in black and white. Yeah, that's a perfect way of phrasing it. <laughs> that's such a good way of putting it. So... I don't know if I phrased that well, but I tried. You did an excellent job. <laughs> but I really like how like bright and colorful it is. And I like how this movie is really sleazy. I like that. I'm a fan of the sleaze. There's there's some copious nudity. I mean, the second movie had some nudity too, but this one, you're just seeing some, you know, tits here and there, and it's, you know, an 80s movie. I also like how in one scene, the Bates Motel is actually full of customers, which is a That was change. bizarre. I mean, granted, the whole idea with Bates, you know, oh, I forgot to, oh... I didn't want to leave this behind. A thing in the first Psycho movie. This is no bullshit when they were making the movie. You know what? Alfred Hitchcock would constantly call Anthony Perkins on set to his annoyance. Masturbates. (laughs) Because of course he did. This is a masturbates movie. (laughs) Ah! Fair enough. Yeah, in more ways than one. But no, but the thing is, he... The motel is off of the the beaten track of the highway. So, like, for all these people to be there at the motel, they must be just like, hey, it's cheap. Yeah, so I thought that was a fun novelty. I loved John H. Fahey, right? um, uh, No, no, no. His name is uh, Jeff Fahey. Jeff Fahey. I loved him in this movie. Yeah, Jeff Fahey. Like, we should kind of give the premise of the movie... Like, what happens at the very beginning is that Diana Scarwood, who you might remember from such films as Mommy Dearest, as the daughter. Grown up. And that's pretty much it. And she was, <laughs> and she was pretty bad, I think, in Mommy Dearest. At least, you know, that's my take on that. Um, in this movie, she plays this nun who kind of flips out and says there is no God and kind of gives up church but then like accidentally knocks a nun off of uh the top of this uh pyre basically like an homage to vertigo and so she tries she runs she's kind of cast out and she's kind of wandering out in the desert and gets picked up by jeff fahey who's you know i'm a musician man (laughs) i'm on my way to la to do musician things (laughs) and of course he immediately you know sexually assaults her and, you know, she tries to, you know, she runs away from him. And both he and her wind up at the Bates Motel. Um, he, he, Jeff Day, he shows up to, you know, at first he kind of looks through the register to maybe take, like, <laughs> the ten bucks Norman has there. But there's also a surprisingly a help wanted sign. 
I guess, to do stuff. And so he starts working there. And Diana Scarwood shows up because, you know, needs a place to stay. Um, and that's basically how we jump off into the movie. Um, now, I'm not going to lie and say, like, this movie is some, like, you know, is psycho. <laughs> or even Psycho 2. No, it's... Look, it's it's a, the first, the second movie is a legitimately good high. This is like, you know, Psycho on drugs. This is your brain. This is Psycho. This is Psycho on drugs. <laughs> Crack egg. Any questions? It is a. This is actually what I think people were afraid Psycho Two would be. It's where you actually get to see Norman Bates in Mother's Get Up. You know, killing people. Um, at, at first, you're maybe made to think, well, we don't know who's killing them, but no, it's Norman. Um, I just enjoy how trashy this movie is. It is like just pure pulp. And I think the one knock which you are are right about, though, is it doesn't really explore that much new with Norman. Yeah, so basically, Norman is, I think, more of a conventional slasher figure in this movie. Yeah. And the movie is much more of a conventional slasher film. The, my issue with it is that when Norman is killing people in, you know, with bright colors in the background, yeah. I am for it. I like the kill scenes in this movie. I'm okay with the fact that they kind of jettisoned any attempt to make like a real movie. Well, I think the problem, here's the issue. I think it has a really strong first third and then a bonkers third act. Like, cause the opening of this, you're introduced to these new characters. You know, there's immediately this tension. You realize Jeff Fahey, even though he's not, you know, you could say Norman is the villain of the movie, but he's our main character. Jeff Fahey is actually like, an antagonist. He's someone who could get in Norman's way. So that is all set up, I think really well. And it feels like, Ooh, where is this going to go? Where it lags is in the middle. And it's like, Oh, so now, so, you know, um, so Norman and the Diana Scarwood character, uh, her name is, uh, Maureen Coyle. Get it? Oh. The initials yeah. MC. It's, by the way, right there on her suitcase. Uh, do you see it, Norman? Eh, eh, eh. Um, like, there is that. Um, that. That romance, I just... Or if it even is a romance, I didn't really buy that much. Yeah, I, I cannot stand the mopey nun in this movie. I think she's a refugee from another deeply boring film. And... <laughs> I feel well, like this movie is like... Sorry, go ahead. I feel like this movie is about half good, unclean fun, but the other half I just find very boring and meandering. And what I said to you at one point is, this movie feels like it doesn't have any narrative momentum. It doesn't have any drive. It doesn't, but again, I think the third act is what saves it when it just embraces being like a crazy horror movie and... I mean, you get a scene where Norman Bates attacks the Jeff Fahey character and on a TV in the background, Woody Woodpecker is playing. That was awesome. Um, and, oh, and that also leads to one of my favorite scenes in the whole series where it's like Norman is uh, taking out, you know, Jeff Fahey, um, you know, and going to do the thing that he does where he drown, you know, takes the car in the swamp. 
but then like Jeff Fahey attacks and then he and Norman are underwater. Yeah. And that was really cool. I thought that was a very well staged and very tense scene. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's that is a problem, as you say. Like, yeah, there is a lot of like mopey stuff. Uh, I get I just I think the stuff that I liked in here, I liked a little more than you did on a guilty pleasure sort of level. Um, like, I guess it's hard for me to really defend it as like, you know, that much of like, oh, my God, you must see this. This is high quality stuff. No, it's not. It's an exploitation movie. I mean, Norman converses with Mother, and, you know, it's like he, those scenes are just very, like, well, okay, we're doing this now. Oh, I should mention, if you watch all four of these movies back to back to back to back like we did, you'll notice, on the one hand, there's tons of callbacks to the original and Psychos 2, 3, and 4. But for all those, for all of that gratuitous fan service, there's not a lot of <clears throat> mother's voice continuity from film to film. Yeah, that part's a little odd. Um, oh, I will say one part that I legitimately thought really worked here was like an act, it was a callback that I think subverted what we would expect in a good way, in a clever way. Um, you know, it's like there's a moment where we see the Dia Scarwood character. Um, she then, you know, takes off her clothes and goes into the bathroom. And, oh, my God, is it about to be shower time? Because we see a figure going into the room uh-huh. and in a dress and pull back the curtain. And she's, like, slashed her wrists and is in the bathtub. And that's like – and then she looks up and Norman suddenly becomes, like, you know, the mother of, a, you know, like a saint. And I really liked that moment. That was true. That was clever that Norman goes to murder her, but then when he sees she's tried to kill herself, it awakens in him a protective urge instead. Yeah, and he goes and brings her to the hospital. And And that, I think, is very... Like, the one thing that saved her was her trying to off herself. Well... She's just lucky that Norman came to kill her. Because if he hadn't, <laughs> she could be dead. Yeah, here's the problem with the movie. It does. I think it's it does. It's not necessarily a full on problem if there's not strong story momentum because it could be. It's. I think it's trying to be more of a character driven piece. The problem is you need to then make it a really, really strong script, like a character script. Yeah. And like we said, it doesn't explore that much new with, with Norman. You know, Perkins is certainly digging into his tics. Yeah. And I think I might mention this to you when you were watching it. I thought he was kind of shattering it up a bit. Yeah, there were times in this movie where his line delivery was very Shatner-like. And it was kind of weird that... Him directing himself didn't seem to get quite the same level of quality of performance that other directors got out of him. Yeah, Psycho 3 is to the Psycho movies what Star Trek 5 is to the Star Trek movies. (laughs) You know, you let the actor direct himself and, well, see what happens. (laughs) Um, But again, I don't think... Again, watching all these movies, I think, was also what made me a little bit kinder to it. If maybe I had seen this like years apart and on its own, maybe I would feel differently about it. But because we were watching them all back to back, 
I was maybe a little bit kinder to it. Yeah. Because I... I was already in the norm space. <laughs> I was in the bait space. <laughs> well, were you in the master bait space? Uh, <laughs> uh, that reminds me of uh, the first time I heard that word in a movie that I can remember was when watching History of the World Part 1, when Malin Khan is like this uh, Roman empress uh, tells one of her guards, ah, but the servant waits while the masturbates. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? You know, I was such a little kid. It's like, I, I shouldn't be hearing this. I would give Psycho 3 a gentle <clears throat> thumbs down. I would give it a gentle thumbs up. I don't necessarily say, like, you should rush to see this, but it is, I still think, more worthwhile than the movie that ended out this series, which now we can get into Psycho 4. Where I'm going to certainly earn my name, Trash Panda Corey. Yeah, I wouldn't say this is all you, but, oh man, this was like, I feel so conflicted about this one. Like, it's just, because there are trashy things about this one too, but it's like, Oh, so, oh my god, the screenplay. This is a script by the same guy that wrote Psycho. I cannot believe that. Because this movie... Now, I actually enjoyed Psycho more, more than Psycho 3. But don't get me wrong. Psycho 4 is hot garbage. Get that whore out of my house. She's not a whore, mother. I said get rid of her. Or do I have to do it myself? No, Mother. I'll get rid of her. Kill her. Kill her? I can't. No. No, I can't. All right, all right. Then I'll do it for you. Shh. Come here, Norman. Put your ear next to Mommy's lips. Come. And uh, you will cringe in your seat at how bad a lot of the dialogue in this film is. This movie is so silly. So silly. It's extremely silly. <laughs> it is like, this movie's based... <laughs> they should have they should, they should nicknamed it the Base Motel. <laughs> ah, I'll be here all night, folks. Oh. I'm going out on a high note. Goodbye, everybody. So, <laughs> <laughs> the setup in Psycho 4. Oh, is... please explain this to our listeners. Okay. So, Norman Bates has been let out of the asylum again. <laughs> We're now entering into. Batman territory. Yes! They've let out the Riddler again, folks. I wonder what's going to happen next. Is he going to start leaving riddles all over the city? I wonder what's going to happen now. Yes, that's what I said to you when we watched this. I said Arkham Asylum hasn't got anything on the mental At least they could have maybe had a scene where they showed, like, him and a bunch of other people breaking out. At least then we would have, like, some sense. Like, this is, like, white privilege gone batty, man. <laughs> so, like, I, God. After 
he was put in the asylum again <laughs> after committing many additional murders. They let him out again after only a few years. And not only has he been let out, but one of his doctors from the asylum has married him and has gotten knocked up by him. So she trapped him because she wants a Norman Bates baby. And the movie starts where Norman Bates calls a call-in show. By the way, we don't find out the part about the baby until well into yeah, the movie. Yeah, well into the movie. So the movie starts... With, Nor- <laughs> yeah, there's this radio show. It's almost like pump like pump up the volume or talk radio. And this, this uh, woman, that CCH Pounder... Yep. That was his name, who you said was on ER. She was on ER, and she was great on ER. Also, I haven't watched it yet, but she had a prominent role on The Shield. Okay. And, yeah, she's hosting this show, and the theme of, like, the evening is, like, men who kill their mothers. Oh. And they have, like, a couple of guests already there, but they have to, like, go back to their cells or their home or whatever. Like, and, you know, they have. she also has on this doctor who... I forget his... Oh, why should I say I forget his name? I have opened my phone. Um, the actor is named uh, Warren Frost. And if, he's, and if he looks familiar to anybody when you watch it, he was uh, Donna Hayward's father on uh, Twin Peaks. And he's like a psychiatrist who's also there on the show. And they get a call from a guy named Ed <laughs> who tells us that he killed his mother... And he plans on killing again. <laughs> and they're like, hmm, this is fascinating. Well, tell us more about you, Ed. Well, let's see. I killed my mother. I also killed a lot of other women. And I used to work at this motel. Let me tell you about it. And then <laughs> all of a sudden, it's like five minutes in. They're like, holy shit, this is Norman Bates. <laughs> and-, uh, and then we get basically the prequel story to fill in those much-needed gaps we needed about the early years of Norman with his mother. Now, I said to you, it's a pretty big failing if a prequel doesn't tell you anything about a character you didn't already know. Yeah, and this doesn't do that. It's like, nor half of this movie, more than half of this movie, is Anthony Perkins, who, oh God, and it's so sad, because this is where we gotta get, you know, legitimately sat here for a moment. You know, Anthony Perkins died of AIDS in 1991. <laughs> I bet you didn't expect that guy's twist. Oh, poor <laughs> he Anthony died Perkins. Of, he died of AIDS. Yeah, poor Anthony Perkins. He got contracted AIDS. Actually, he found out when he was making Psycho 3. So he knew he was, like, gonna die at some point making this movie. And he phones in half his performance, literally! Yeah, most of the time he's just on the phone talking to this radio. You know, and kind of hamming it up in, you know, his way. And I'll give, to his credit, you know, Anthony Perkins knows what movie he should be in. It's just the script thinks it's like, you know, saying all these lofty psychological things, which... No, pal. You're making almost fucking Norman Bates fan fiction. Oh, That's what this movie is. That's why it makes me mad. Half this movie is like Norman Bates, not only fan fiction, it's like erotic fan fiction. Oh, see, I... Oh, I love how incredibly stupid this movie is. If you've ever heard the phrase 
purple prose. This script is full of ludicrous purple prose. Everyone talks like they're the antagonist in the world's dumbest romance novel. There's a part where I think he, I wrote this down so I didn't forget. Is it him or his mother that says soul cancer? It's him. <laughs> when he's, after he's killed his mother, he references his soul cancer. Now, I would have mentioned, oh, too, oh, we gotta oh. talk about mother. Now, now here's why I'll say another positive. Olivia Hussey, yes, Juliet from Romeo and Juliet. You didn't know who I was talking no, about. She's also the lead in Black Christmas. Olivia Hussey plays Norman Bates' mom, and I think she knows what kind of movie she's in. Oh, yeah. She's vamping it up like a motherfucker. No pun. Well, pun intended. <laughs> Gee, I, I did not mean for it to come out like that. But, no, it's like half of her scenes with young Norman are basically like, I'm going to play with you, Norman. Ha, ha, ha. Are we rolling around? What are you doing with that boner? It is an intentionally committed, utterly shameless performance. She had some line in this that I couldn't... She has so many lines that Joseph Stefano gives her that, like... Like, oh, it's so bad. So, so bad. It hurts. It hurts so much. Like, Tommy Wiseau would look at this and say, (laughs) I think that's going too far. Oh, if I may be crude for a moment... Her breasts, fucking phenomenal. <laughs> they're real and they're spectacular. Like, absolutely spectacular. Yeah. I... <laughs> Somebody I follow on Letterbox gave the movie uh, two stars and said these two stars are for Olivia Hussey's breasts. <laughs> so if I may be vulgar, her breasts are like, like uh, two of the seven wonders of the world, man. Yeah, well, we don't see that much of them either. Yeah, but even seeing them once, briefly, magnificent. Well, that was also, like, I mean, again, I don't think you saw the original Romeo and Juliet. Like, that was a lot of, like, little, like, young boys, like, first time seeing boobs. Because, mm. like, it's been a thing, I guess, over the the decades where school, people, like, school teachers will just show their classes in 1968 Romeo and Juliet, and Olivia Hussey in that movie was only, like, 15. And there's a part where she just, like, gets out of, like, a bed, but she's topless. And it was, like, a PG movie. Yeah. And she, and the actress was under the age of 18. Yes. Wow. (laughs) So, yep. And this is a PG movie. Yep. Yep, for... Uh, again, this has just been a thing because, you know, it's school. You're going to show Romeo and Juliet. Why not show the 1968 Franco Zeffirelli version that, yep, features 15-year-old boobs? But yeah, I'll Okay, be- <laughs> we, we got off track. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm the one who started us down the dark path. But, like, but seriously, like, you can't defend some of the shit she's given to say in this. It's... It's an incredibly scenery-chewing performance, and the script is cringe-inducing. Like, everything she says, oh my god, the scene where she asks um, Norman to pat her down with orange water as she fangs herself on a hot day. Like, this, this is like, just, this is barely a step removed from 
like the scene that my mom loves to quote to me from Atlantic City, where Susan Sarandon is like wiping herself down with lemons. <laughs> here's my one. Here's a criticism I have of this movie, though. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> Go on. Given that this movie is super pulpy and ridiculous, I really wish it had gone all the way and had Mother and Norman full-on fuck. I feel like since this movie is totally ridiculous and... Well, it teases incest. It doesn't go there. I wish this movie had gone there. I wish this movie had actually shown them fuck. I want Mother and Norman to get down to Pound Town. But you see, though, like... That's where, you know, but that's where, you know, Joseph Stefano's, you know, fucked up head. It's like, you know, they couldn't actually consummate it. It's like, he just wants to own her, like, you know, mind, body, and soul. But, you know, when she then goes to another man for, you know, the dick, you know, that's when it sets Norman off. And I like, we didn't know about this before and all this stuff and there's another fascinating aspect too that like young norman bates is played by henry thomas who you know for a lot of movie fans will always know him as elliot from (laughs) et so the fact that the little boy who you know fell in love with cute little et is also getting like inappropriate boners and dressing up as mother to stab people yeah. Kind of fascinating. Oh, God. And, yeah, that's the thing, is that when Norman has to, like, rub down his mother with the orange water, he pops a boner, and then she flips out. And tells him, is that the scene where he forces, he, she forces him to go outside? Well, no, that's a different scene. Okay. That's, um, but in this scene, this is when he forces her to wear the dress, and set, and she refers to his cock as his wee-wee. <laughs> Which led to me making the Rocco's Modern Life reference. Wee-wee! Wee-wee! And she locks him in a closet after forcing him to wear the dress and says that, he, that his uh, wee-wee is only for urination and that... Mm-hmm. She wishes that, you know, he was like a girl who didn't have a dirty wee Oh, Yeah. But what I'm saying is, if your movie is already this campy, I wish they had gone the extra step yeah, and made them actually like, have sex. And again, Olivia Hussey is really channeling some Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest vibes. Yes, Second Mommy Dearest reference <laughs> we've had this episode. And yeah, it, it's not something that you can really take it. And the problem is, too, I think at the core, it's just this movie is so unnecessary. Like, yeah. I know you could you could have said that about Psycho 3, but at least Psycho 3 found a way to have some real fun with it. And there are even little parts of Psycho 4 that, you know, still work on that level. I mean, it has some of it. It's a mess, but it is certainly, here another pun, committed. <laughs> um, and I mean, it is what it is. It's sorted. It's overbaked. You know, and it allows Perkins one more time to be like, I, I have to do it. I have to kill you. <laughs> no. But the problem is now, it, it kind of, dra- I feel like this movie drains a lot, like the sympathy I have for Norman. Yeah, because by the time Norman's been let out of the institution again. Yeah. 
<laughs> Again, the whole premise is just so stupid. It's like, at least, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this. At least Joker gave me some <laughs> like basis of why Joker is not getting his treatment because, you know, society, man. <laughs> but we don't even have that excuse here. It's just like, well, cured. You know, at least we could have had the thing like even maybe like unsane where like your health insurance ran out. Oh man, that would have been awesome. That's how they should have done it. They should Steven Soderbergh should have directed Psycho 4. <laughs> we should mention though, too, there are kills in this movie, okay. but they're flashback kills. Yeah, and I'll say though, those kills, there are a couple the couple of murders, they actually kind of landed for me. Those were okay. Like the first one that kind of happens on like July 4th. Uh-huh. We're supposed to be seen where like a young girl like literally just gets into bed naked and says, do me Norman, you know, like, like that was, uh, that actually worked for me. Like that sequence, there was also another scene like about midway through that worked for me like that. Mm -hmm. So that was okay. But like, whenever it tries to be like even close to a real movie, it's just, I don't know what it's trying to be. Oh, God. And, like, and you cut to these, like, radio scenes that ultimately don't really mean much at all. Because it's it's all leading up to this, like, finale where Norman is facing the ghosts of his past, quote-unquote. And they're not the ghosts from the other three movies. They're just the ghosts (laughs) from this movie. (laughs) Yeah, there's no, like, Marion ghost. Although, to be fair, this is actually the only movie that doesn't feature, like, a shower scene. Like, the, sh- or I should say, like, the second movie opens with just showing you the shower scene again. And the third movie has little tiny snippets of the shower scene. Because I guess, you know, you can't have Psycho without the shower scene. This one doesn't have that. It has some parts of the score. Yeah. And this is the first... Psycho 4 is the first movie to bring back the score, right? Yeah, it's the first one. And uh, not that they do much with it. It's just there. Oh, can I mention the climactic scene where Norman kills mother and the boyfriend? Hilarious. Oh, yeah, no, that, that, that is kind of fun. Yeah, it's like, uh, it, it's like, it's the second best scene in movie history involving Granny's Peach Tea. <laughs> the first one, of course, being Batman v Superman. <laughs> By best, I mean worst. Um, so, yeah, let's, I want to describe this scene a little bit where, if you don't remember from Psycho 1, Norman kills his mother by poisoning her. And specifically, he puts poison in her iced tea. Now, what's funny about this is Nor- Mother calls for iced tea for her and her boy toy. And when she calls for the iced tea, she says, I am so thirsty, I can't even swallow. And she's been engaged in very vigorous sexual calisthenics with her boyfriend And when Norman gives her the drink, this woman who has just said, I'm so thirsty, I can't even swallow, she dances with her iced tea for like a minute. She's like dancing around the room, rubbing the the glass of iced tea. It's very much it's very much Mick Garris trying to do a am I gonna do it? (laughs) 
also, I have to say, I can't believe these words are about to come out of my mouth. Um, I don't. I don't think Mother is a consistent character in this movie because Mother is presented in all the Psycho movies as a very like prim, uptight, prudish woman. And yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, in this movie. She's almost like a, you know, now granted, to be fair, like, again, her husband is dead for a while, so she's had time to just be kind of sexually pent up. But yeah, you're right. It's very, like, I don't know. And the fact that Mother completely abandons Norman once she gets the boyfriend Mm -hmm. isn't really in line with how Mother's been presented in the other movies. Yes. I think this could lead us now into the part of the discussion that you have insight to that I don't, which is the Bates Motel TV show. Okay. So I've watched four episodes of the Bates Motel TV show. I watched episode one and two late last night, and I watched episode three and four today. I really don't know if I'm going to keep watching it beyond this point. So what's the premise? Like, what what's the kind of framework of the show so far? So... The show starts with the very opening scene of the first episode is Norman's father is dead. We discover Norman's father is dead. And Norman... Did he die in an alley? <laughs> he dies in a gar- in his garage. Mm. And Norman and... I mean, I know I always just call her mother, but they usually call her by her name on the show. Norma Bates? Yeah. So, <laughs> again, that's where, like, the roots of the pulp novel kind of come into play. <laughs> well, you know, they even mention that in the pilot, like, when Norma and Norman have to introduce themselves to this police officer, this guy's like, huh, Norma and Norman, that's weird. Are you sure you aren't Archie characters? <laughs> and then Norma's like, well, men name their sons after them all the time, so I named my son after me. Mm. But... So, Norman's father is dead, and since he was an insurance salesman, we were told they've got a really nice insurance policy. So, they move out of Arizona into California, and they want to start a new life by buying a hotel and fixing it up. Now, Bates Motel is not a period piece. It's set in the modern time. Really? Yeah. They they moved it up to, like... The 21st century? Yes, but... So they that's kind of almost like what they did with Watchmen. So yeah, it's set... I think season one of the show came out in either 2013 or 2014, and that's the year it's set. Even though both Norma and Norman, frankly, they dress like characters from the 50s, and like, aesthetically, their house and... The motel kind of look like they're from the 60s. Well, I was going to say, I mean, if they're going to keep it like the way that it was back then, why wouldn't they just make it a period piece? Well, it's not. It's set in modern times. The one thing I will give this show is it's not it doesn't seem to just be rehashing the movie like plot wise. It's actually quite distinct. Okay, so it's trying to be its own thing. Now, my issue with the four episodes I've watched, is that I really like the performance of Mira Formiga as... Mira Formiga. Yeah, as mother. And she's actually, like, an actual human being, unlike 
mother and the and the psycho movie she's just like this crazy harridan shrieking nightmare figure she's actually a person i really like her in the show i think she's doing very well and i also think she's kind of in line tonally with what the show is going for I'm mixed on, um, I forget the name of the guy who's playing Norman. It's something Highmore. Oh! It's that oh, oh, the guy, Freddie Highmore? The yeah. guy from, uh, like, the Finding Neverland or something? I'm mixed on him as Norman. Like, there are time, there are individual scenes I think he plays well. And I, th- what I think it is, is I think he plays well off of Vera Formiga. So when it's just like Norma and Norman, I think they play off each other well. But I don't really like him in scenes with other characters. Hmm. <clears throat> so okay, my big issue, though, is if I gave you a plot summary of the first four episodes of the show, you would say, like, man, this sounds bonkers. Because the first... The first four episodes of the show have a murder, a rape, a Chinese sex trafficking ring. Okay. Michael Hobbs would be very disapproving. <laughs> the show treats the traffic of <laughs> treats the topic of sex trafficking. So a Chinese sex trafficking ring, a giant pot ring, um, corrupt cops. Um, is it also a problem that like do the do Norma and Norman seem like characters out of time in this like modern setting? Norman does. What I what's weird about Norman is Norman's kind of, you know, an introverted dweeb, but when he gets to this new town in California, all these girls start throwing themselves at him. It's totally bizarre. I just, I'm just thinking of the end of the that one Seinfeld episode where, um, do you know what I'm talking about? Where Newman has been kicked out of the postal truck and he's wandering and he runs into uh, um, Ron Howard's father and uh, the you know the, he's playing the farmer, yes, the farmer's daughter, and he's running out of the house and the woman yells after him, "I love you, Norman." <laughs> There are, like, five farmer's daughters <laughs> panting after Norman. And it's just totally weird. Like, Norman gets there, and on the one hand, I guess it's nice they're kind of subverting the cliche of, like, everyone bullies the new kid. But literally, Norman's there for one day, and there's this group of four girls who get, like, totally obsessed with him. Huh. And... Now, the thing, it's, it's kind of, well... <sighs> On the one hand, you could well. It's like it's hard though because we spent. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the thing with Anthony Perkins and how uh, he actually had actresses kind of throwing themselves at him. But maybe this guy Freddie Highmore isn't well, up to Anthony Perkins. They standards. were throwing themselves at Anthony Perkins, not Norman Bates, and the Norman Bates character. He's um, portrayed, as far as these girls know, I think they said they like him because he's not, like, brash and aggressive like other teen boys in the school. Mm -hmm. They like that he's kind of, like, soft and withdrawn. 
But it sounds like a plot contrivance. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but Freddie Highmore has negative chemistry with everyone who is not Mother. Well, again, I haven't really seen... Like, I only remember him from, like, Finding Neverland and, like... And it's it. weird, it's that... Plot-wise, all these crazy things seem to be happening, but I don't I don't find it that interesting plot-wise. Also, Norman has a half-brother on the show <laughs> named so, Dylan. I'm sorry. I just they gave him like a dawn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, Dylan's older than Norman, not younger, but I hate this character, Dylan. He's just, like, a one-dimensional asshole, and I find him totally boring. So, I'm torn, because I really like Norma, and I'm kind of into the show's vibe when, like, Norma and Norman are kind of playing off each other. Mm -hmm. How many seasons was it? It's five seasons. That's a lot. Ten episodes each. Fifty episodes of Bates Motel. Yeah. I feel like, did they, why did I feel like I read somewhere that eventually Marion Crane actually was a character on the show? I mean, maybe you did. I read a quote from Alan Sepinwall that said, the show eventually justified its existence, but not until it had been on the air for like four seasons. That's a while to be watching a show like that. I don't know, man. I'm actually, so I'm very, very torn about it because I think there are these elements that are kind of interesting, but Mm -hmm. I'm really not into like most of the plot things that we've Mm. seen so far. And I said, I don't. It it needed more uh, rubbing oranges and (laughs) ice You know, I read a review of it that said, it's going for, like, a Twin Peaksy style atmosphere. Mm. And I can kind of see that. But the problem is I don't find enough of the characters interesting so far. So That's basically, there's one character I like. I like Norma. I like Norman when he's interacting with Norma, but I don't really care about him when he's not interacting with her. Then there are a bunch of other characters that have been introduced that I don't find very interesting at all. Mm-hmm. So I really don't know if I'm going to watch any more of it beyond the first four. I might, I might give it more of a shot now than I would have in the past because we're in COVID times. What else do I have to do? Or you could also watch the unaired pilot of Bates Motel from the 90s. Did you hear about that? There was, like, another attempt to make, like, a Bates Motel show. I don't know much about it, except Bud Court is in it. (laughs) So that's all I know. If anybody else has seen the other Bates Motel, please, you know, write to us. Um, So I guess we can wrap things up. I mean, again, I think the Psycho series is actually a lot of fun. It's like, obviously... You start off at the top with, you know, the one that can't be beat. And it's almost unfair. But in on the whole, this series has a lot going for it. And, yeah. you know, it has, you know, as a horror movie fan, I think it has a, a much different kind of character than you get in a lot of other the slashers. Because typically you have, you know, a faceless drone or... Maybe at best you have like the wise cracking guy like Freddy or Chucky. Um, 
or you know or if you have a freak it's like a leatherface it's not actually both norman bates and leatherface have descendants of ed gein um but this is like the guy who's like on the surface the kind of sensitive quirky you know kind of caring soul the guy who likes to play the piano in his parlor and stuff you know birds and he also has another person in his head that has him kill people yeah it's it's a but it's like you want him to do better you want him to try to not be this crazy person was this do you know was psycho the first like multiple personality movie Hmm. I, I, I don't know. I feel like it, there must have been maybe something else before it. Like, that's a good question. Uh, maybe that was part of the appeal for, uh, for Hitchcock. You know, maybe that was something else to it. Um, uh, you know, maybe that's why too, like Vertigo, I think also appealed to me after I saw Psycho because, even though that's not exactly a multiple personality movie, like in the same way, it is about someone who is supposed to be like taking like someone who's dead, taking over a living person, so to speak. And of yeah. course it's all a big hoax. And then, you know, Jimmy Stewart finds out and he's not happy about <laughs> it. Um, no, it's a good question. I, I have to think there must've been, something else that I'm not thinking of. And I'm sure there's someone out there who's yelling at us that not, but what's interesting too, with psycho again, we talked about how, you know, that's not really a trashy movie. It's actually, you know, extremely well-made and, you know, innovative. I think it did spawn a lot of trash. Yeah. And it, it also did inspire like so many, um, Italian like horror movie filmmakers. And of course, you know, Dressed to Kill and Brian De Palma. Yeah. Even though I don't think the killer in Dressed to Kill is like, I don't think they're, I don't think he's driven by the same thing Nor Norman Bates is driven no, by at all. No, 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 no. Not, not really. And also he doesn't have the same sympathy as Norman Bates. Yeah. You know, because you cast icy Michael Caine, you know. Not not the same quality as Norman Bates. Um, so, any final thoughts about the Psycho series now that you've seen all four of them? Well, I think you nailed it when you said almost anything you want as a horror movie fan, you can get in one of the four Psycho films. I think they're an awesome microcosm of basically everything the horror genre has to offer because you see pretty much the pinnacle of the form in Psycho 1. In Psycho 4, I think you see an example of how sublimely entertaining absolute garbage can be. And in Psycho 3, you have, like, this time capsule of, like, the brainless 80s slasher movie. So I think as a whole... You can watch these four movies as an interesting kind of development of the history of the horror movie, apart from the individual plots of each movie. And I would recommend three out of these four movies, which is a pretty good batting average. Same here. I would recommend them to, we just have an idea about a different one. Of those yes, movies. you would recommend one, two, and three. I would recommend one, two, and four. And you know, there's a part of me that also would recommend parts of four. 
I mean, I feel like if you are already going to watch the first three, you might as well finish <laughs> it off and watch the fourth one. It's not very good, but, you know, what else are you going to do with your life? You know, I mean, I, I actually, I think I said it in my review. I mean, you know, if we had anything more then you know, well, why not? Let's go for it. Let's watch, uh, by the way, John Landis makes a cameo in Psycho 4 too. That's a crazy-ass moment. What I love, too, is in his, ca- in his cameo, he's cavalier about human life, which is very appropriate. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's kind of an interesting point. Nick Garris uh, cast him kind of interestingly. So I enjoyed watching these movies. I enjoyed talking about them with you. Yeah, and if nothing else, Bernard Holm- Herman still the goat. <laughs> All, right. All right, guys. So thank you for listening to this very exhaustive deep dive into the Psycho series and even a little bit of Bates Motel. If you guys have seen the Psycho movies or read the book or watched the show, please email us, write to us. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Hit us up and let us know about your Psycho thoughts. You know, your psycho killer, kiss cassette, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. And of course, next time we may come back with more horror stuff, or maybe we'll come back with something completely different. You never know. You know, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Maybe it'll be something Hitchcock related. Dot dot dot. You don't know. You never know. All right. All right, guys, until next time, I'm Jack. I'm Trash Panda Corey. And the wages of cinema is hugs. <laughs> Norman needed some non-infection colors. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all niggas had enough? Give me some more. Y'all niggas want the wild shit? Give me some more. Hey, split for the weed out. Give me some more. I know y'all niggas need that. Give me some more. Even though we getting money, you can give me some more. With the cars in the big crib. Give me some more. Everybody spread love. Give me some more. If you want it, let me hear you say it. Give me some more.